Welcome to the Revelation Church podcast. We trust today's message will speak to you. If you'd like to get in touch, just drop us an email at hello at revelationchurch.org.uk. So great to see uh, many faces, familiar faces, new faces. Good to have you with us at Rev today. We are um, we're in the middle of a series in the book of Daniel. We're going to be looking at the second half of Daniel chapter 2. I'm going to read that to you in just a moment. The words will come up on the screen in just a moment. Just going to help you understand, in case you weren't here last week, or you're not familiar with Daniel 2. Essentially what happens is Daniel, who is an exile from Judah in Babylon, has been through his three years of training. He's clearly a very gifted young man, um, not just in knowledge and various things of the Babylonian courts, but he's also spiritually gifted, gifted in dreams and interpretation. Um, also a very godly man, resolute in his heart to... Honour the God of heaven and earth um, and not give way to the various pressures around him, wanting him to worship any other number of various gods or belief systems. A very resolute man, a very um, courteous and wise and prudent man in the way he deals with others as well. Not a clumsy man, a man who thinks about how he says things and how he requests things. And suddenly in this story, you find himself plunged into a moment of real pressure whereby the king has a dream... And he's deeply troubled by it. And then he calls on all of his advisors and enchanters and magicians and Chaldeans and all of those. And he calls on them to tell him, tell him his dream and the interpretation of his dream. Now, it's not clear whether the king himself has forgotten his dream. So you, you've had a moment where you've had a dream and you're agitated but you can't remember it. You ever had that? So whether that's what he's had the dream, but he can't remember it, but he's bothered by it. And so he needs, to, he needs to know the dream and the interpretation or whether he remembers the dream. But in order to ensure that these people don't just basically give him the pat answers. Oh, you've had a dream about this. This equals that. These symbols always mean that. It means this. He wants to avoid that because he, he still remembers the dream. Yet nevertheless, he says, only when you tell me the dream and the interpretation will I actually believe the interpretation. Okay? It could be that or it could be that. Either way, he puts these magicians and fortune tellers and Chaldeans in a real fix. And they're saying, no one can do this. And he says, well, unfortunately, if no one can do it, all of you will be gathered up and you will be torn limb from limb. And your houses will be made into rubbish dumps, which is very vivid. Um, uh, and so puts immense pressure on. Now, Daniel is part of this group. Even though he's not an occultist or a fortune teller, he's been lumped in with this group. So his life's in danger. His friend's life's in danger. He calls on his friends to pray to God for mercy. And God reveals to him this dream and interpretation. So we got, where we got up to last week was him basically saying to the, to the, to the captain of the guard, bring me into the king. I've got, I've got the interpretation. So let's pick up from uh, verse 24. Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, 
No wise men, enchanters, magicians or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will, happen in the, what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. You saw, O king, and behold a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now, we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end and it shall stand forever just as you saw. Da, da, da. It's feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might and the glory, and into whose hand is given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you. Have we done this already? Yes. I thought so. Is that the end then? <laughs> Here we go. Right. A stone cut from a mountain, but by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king 
what shall be after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation sure. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. For you have been... Rev kids. <laughs> Amazing. Lesson is, read from the, read from the Bible. No, for you've been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honours and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon that Daniel remained at the king's court. Amen. <laughs> Hope you managed to uh, follow that, but let's give up because it's not an easy job. Give it up for Adrian. It's not, it's not. So it's absolutely fine. It's not a problem at all. Lord, we thank you for your word. And I want to pray, Lord, that as we just unpack this incredible story, that in, in a way that only you can, you would make very, very clear and pertinent to our hearts why this matters so much to us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There's so many things I could focus on in this sermon. We try and keep our sermons down to an hour and a half, so because of that... No, there's so many things we could focus on. Um, I could focus on Daniel's incredible humility. You know, what a moment for him to take all the glory for himself. Instead, he, he knows that he's, he's simply a vessel. Um, he's had this revel- He's called out on God for mercy. God has given mercy, shown in the vision, and he's delivered it. So important in those moments to remember the glory of God and not to become sidetracked with ourselves in moments where God raises us up and God honors us. And people potentially get the wrong idea. People potentially think there's something really super special about us. In tempted in those moments of time to begin to uh, receive that, you see straight away Daniel's knee-jerk reaction, giving glory to God. I, we could talk about Daniel's commitment to his friends. Fascinating how the passage ends. That he, uh, and that he says, we will bring the interpretation. He's called on his friends to pray. Maybe, maybe he insisted that going into the king's presence with his friends and then requests them a place to serve the king. He's not a man caught up with himself. Wonderful. We could talk about his courage. He basically predicts the end of the Babylonian Empire in front of the Babylonian king. Your kingdom will not last forever. Extraordinary courageously thing to do. Imagine that moment where you suddenly understand what it means. Oh, okay, how honest am I going to be at this point? We could talk about that. We could talk about Nebuchadnezzar's journey, which we'll see develop in the next few sermons and the next few chapters of where it seems that, it seems that he probably genuinely came to, to faith in the God of heaven. But the distress and the difficulty and what he had to go through to get there, and that's in a very important uh, insight for us who know the Lord and are praying for others to come to know the Lord. And maybe you're here and you don't yet know the Lord and you think, God, oh, this journey is... It's tumultuous, it's, it's, there's moments of distress, it's not, it's not straightforward, it's not as smooth as I thought it might be. Because when the Lord wants to break into our lives and come into our lives as the foundation, then he, he, he really gets through all of the other stuff. And some of that stuff is very deeply rooted, but the Lord only comes in as foundation. He won't just be built on top of everything else in our lives. And so it can be a very tumultuous journey, and that's okay, because it's worth it. But we mustn't think that the Lord comes and deals in shallow ways. We could talk about that. But instead, I want to focus down two things that you might think are the same thing. But I'm going to show you I'm referring to slightly different things. Number one, the sovereignty of God. Number two, the kingdom of God. We need to understand these things. It's so important you understand. The sovereignty of God 
and the kingdom of God. What do I mean by the sovereignty of God? I mean God's total rule over all of the times and all of the seasons that takes into account but is not undermined by the real choices that people make. I'll say that again. God's total rule over all the times and all the seasons that takes into account but is not undermined by the real choices that people make. You've seen it in action today when Rich led us in prayer for Iran. If we didn't believe in the sovereignty of God, there'd be no point praying. If we didn't believe that God can deal with huge situations that are way beyond our reach, complex situations that God can bring up and bring down and move things around, then there's no point praying. It's just, it would just be a way of showing solidarity with our uh, Iranian brothers and sisters. But although that was part of it, it was much more than that. We were praying to the God who we know is sovereign, which means that he is Lord over all things and that he knows the end from the beginning. It's so important. Daniel, if ever there's a book in the Bible that demonstrates the total sovereignty of God, it's the book of Daniel. As you get into the second half of Daniel, there's predictions and timings which are so frighteningly specific because you can now backdate them and work them out because they're about, they're about things that happened hundreds of years after Daniel but um, a couple of thousand years behind us. Either, if the book of Daniel is authentic, there is absolutely no question that there is a sovereign God over all things. You can't dispute it. If it was tampered with at a later date, that's different. But if this is an authentic account that was written down in the 500s BCs, then there is absolutely no way you can deny in a God who knows the end from the beginning. Because the predictions are just, I mean, neck, hair on your neck tinglingly accurate. So, um, so we're at the more, slightly more generic predictions at this stage, but as the book develops, um, it gets more and more. Detailed. Now, there are different ways to interpret the meanings of these various. The head of gold. We know the head of gold is the Babylonian Empire because Daniel says it to Nebuchadnezzar. But there's, if you go online, you'll find some really interesting interpretations. What's the chest of silver? And then the torso of bronze, and then the, the legs and feet of iron, and iron mixed with clay. And what's, what's clear is that they represent empires. But really, depending on how you interpret that stone that hits the feet and then becomes a mountain that fills the whole, the whole earth, depending on how you interpret that moment, when does that happen, will determine how you interpret uh, this vision. And there are two main ways you can do that. Are you following me? If you interpret the stone hitting the feet as a moment of the kingdom of God coming to a consummation, on the earth, and we'll talk about what the kingdom of God is in just a moment, but basically, basically, in essence, the rule and reign of Jesus Christ being totally established without any dispute on the earth. If that's, if that's then, well, that hasn't happened yet. Okay? Therefore, you will look at the head of gold, Nebuchadnezzar, and you'll try and work out what the, what the biggest kind of um, empires are between now and some point in the future. You're kind of a lot of it's guesswork. But um, interestingly, because the, uh, the Hebrew word for mixed, when it talks about um, the iron mixed with clay, is, is Arab. Some, some, someone on the internet feels this is talking about the Islamic empire. You get these kinds of interpretations and ideas online. There's as many ideas as you can think of, essentially. 
I want to put it to you that uh, it's pretty clear from the Bible that that moment of the stone hitting the foot is actually referring to the incarnation, life, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus Christ. It's talking about the gospel. Okay, And we know what empire was ruling when Jesus came, don't we? The Roman Empire. So because of that, I think the most straightforward way to interpret it is you've got the head of gold, which is Babylon. And then you've got the chest of silver, which is the Medo-Persian Empire. That came next. You can read that even in the book of Daniel. Even throughout the book of Daniel, Babylon is overthrown and you find Darius the Mede and Cyrus the Persian. So you've got the kingdom of the Medo-Persians as the chest of silver. Then your torso of, um, of bronze represents the Greek Empire under Alexander the Great. And then the iron represents the Roman Empire. The mixture seems to represent or be talking about the, in many ways the way that the Roman Empire operated, which was where in, in a sense it wasn't what you might call a pure empire in terms of everyone who was Romans was from Rome. It was very much an international empire. You could, just become, you could become a Roman um, by certain things that weren't related to your race or ethnicity. And it was very much a mixed uh, bag and a mixed bag culturally. And it's quite, it's, quite, uh, it's quite easy to argue that actually no one overcame the Romans. The Romans overcame themselves. Um, essentially, the, 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 the culture of the Romans uh, got to a point of such decadence, probably around the 3rd and 4th century AD, that it imploded in and of itself. All, all its strength drained from the inside. It imploded as an empire. So that's probably, I think, the most obvious way to understand this image is you've got the Babylonian gold head, Medo-Persians, who came next, silver chest, bronze torso, the Greek empire under Alexander the Great, and then the Roman empire as the uh, empire there of iron. So what we're seeing here, as we look at this interpretation, really, of this dream, is we recognize the sovereignty of God over these enormous empires that come and go. Empires that leave in their wake uh, tens, hundreds of thousands of people executed, destroyed in war. This is the reality of life. It always has been. And it always will be. And there's something that we need to get our heads around and understand if we're going to do well in our faith with the Lord and understanding his sovereignty. Because what you tend to find quite often happens is that when something bad happens, someone says, why didn't God intervene? It's a legitimate question on the one hand. The difficult thing is, is that if you keep asking that question, really where you, get, where you get to is this idea where you're going, whenever something bad happens, why doesn't God intervene? If whenever something bad happens, God doesn't intervene, if that then reflects upon the goodness of God, suddenly you're in an intenable situation where unless you're living in some kind of, I don't know, ivory tower where everything is perfect, you've got big problems with your faith. We live in a very broken world. In fact, later on, these kingdoms are represented in Daniel as kind of demonic beasts. 
The imagery changes from this quite magnificent statue to the most horrifying beasts that come out of the sea. And, and the ocean in apocalyptic literature represents turmoil, the turmoil of the nations and, and the unrest. And so you find these, these empires come and they go and they are very often demonically powered. And yet the whole time... They never in that and in the tremendous upheaval it causes for people's lives and mass migration and mass upset and mass pain and hurt and harm, it never at any point undermines the sovereign purposes of God. And it's something that we have to reckon with and get used to if we're going to be able to serve God effectively like Daniel did in his generation and not be thrown off. Because somehow God didn't do what we thought he should do when we thought he should do it. There is a highly complex plan and program at work whereby the Bible says that everything that goes on, God weaves in together for his grand purpose. There will come a day when the questions are answered. There will come a day where we can, we can see the wisdom and goodness of God in everything that has played out. But until that day... The only way we can keep walking forward fruitfully is by trusting him. It's so important that we understand that. We are embroiled in things way bigger than us. And one of the problems with Western culture is it can kind of give you the impression that somehow you are at the center of things. It's like an inflated view of, of self. Whereas although we know that, Every hair on our head is numbered. He knows us by name and he loves and cares about us immensely. Also, in the grand scheme of things, we have to come to the point of realizing we're not the hero. He's the hero. So he writes us into the story. We have a part to play. Hallelujah. But in the grand scheme of things, it's not about us. And the sooner we settle that, the sooner we can deal with the realities that we're up against. If we don't deal with that, then we become very, very fragile people, which is a real shame and doesn't end up going well. So that's the sovereignty of God. I want to focus now on the kingdom of God. What's the kingdom of God and how does that differ? The kingdom of God is the direct rule and reign of God on the earth, inaugurated through Christ and which, when consummated, will do away with all other kingdoms forever. Okay, There's a moment in time... This is why, this is why the, the, the watchword of Jesus' preaching was the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When you just read it in a vacuum, it just sounds nice. But when you begin to read it in light of Daniel, you go, oh my goodness. He's saying now, now this is the moment, the stone that has been cut out, by not by human hands. What does that mean? There's, a, there's a, something divine about this stone. You've got all these man-made kingdoms built on kind of power and greed and personal charisma and all these other things and, and demonic influence. Suddenly, you've got this little stone. And where does it come from? Well, no one knows. It hasn't been cut out by anyone. It's all come out of nowhere. It's divine and it comes and it strikes the heart of this statue. You just, it's, a little, it's a baby born in a manger. And it strikes. Whack, it goes in. And there's this humble life lived that no one really knows about for 30 years. And then there's these three years of extraordinary, wonderful, compassionate ministry and power. But actually, really, it's not what you do if you want to start a kingdom. Jesus hides at the point where they want to make him king by force. Chooses, chooses a rabble as his key followers. 
It's really not what you do if you want to start a kingdom in a human way. Then he's executed. And the whole time, it, the, the, the disciples are looking, looking on going, it's over. It's, what, what's, what's happened? It's failed. The Bible says that at that point there on the cross, every demonic power behind every human empire was being disarmed at the cross. All of the claims the enemy has against humanity, all of the claims before a holy God about how we've broken God's law and how we've failed, all of those claims are being silenced at the moment on the cross. Why? Because Jesus takes in himself, in his own body, our sins. He's completely dealing with all of the enemy's works at that cross in the moment. Then he raised from the dead. When Three days later, he's declared to be the Son of God with power and ascends to the heavenly throne. The Bible describes that, the gospel, the good news, as a moment where a stone, a tiny little stone, no one would notice, whacks into the feet of this enormous statue and does away with all of them. Now, why does it say it does away with all of them? Here's why. Because even though they're all kind of different, they're all the same thing. Human rule. Rule built on human ability. Rule built on human power. This is something completely different. This is a kingdom built on something completely different. This is a kingdom built on divine power. This is a kingdom built on, uh, as we heard earlier, a king who washes the feet of his servants. This is a kingdom built on holiness, humility, purity, love. This is the kingdom built on life in all of its fullness. It's completely different from that pushing to get yourself ahead, showing yourself to be the most powerful and the strongest. Jesus said, even the leaders of this kingdom, you're not going to be like, like no, you're going to, here's a little kid. You're going to learn from this kid. You're going to be like this. Absolutely magnificent, this kingdom. Completely different from any other kingdom. Unfortunately, if you were to look at world history, you'll find that the church has very often got it wrong and has tried to rule in the same way as this statue. They've tried to invade nations and force people to convert. They've done exactly what these other kingdoms have done. They've taken on board the wrong mantle. In the name of Jesus, they've done things in a human, fleshly, oppressive way. This was wrong of the church. Let me say that now. This was wrong of the church to do that. This kingdom is not like that. This kingdom is completely different from that. It's revolutionary in the way that it operates. says that this stone will become like a mountain that fills the whole earth. The stone becomes a mountain. I want to end today just by asking a really important question. But I want to ask it. It's kind of like a question you don't ask, really, as a Christian preacher. But I think it's a question we really need to ask. And it's this. Given that these other empires, they would do their best to kind of fill the whole earth, and get as much property, not property, but as much land and peoples as they can. And it was all about growth and expansion and power. Given that, and given that this kingdom is supposed to be really, really different, can it therefore be shown to be right and okay to evangelize? Is it okay to proselytize? Is it okay to share the good news of the kingdom in the hope that others will convert to this kingdom? Or are you really just being the same as all these other kingdoms? I want to ask the question. 
I think it's a really important question for us to think through because I think we are frequently told by the, our current wider culture that to ask someone or to suggest that someone or to want someone to convert from what they currently believe to what you believe is somehow wrong or bigoted or inappropriate. I want to ask the question, is that the case? Well, the Bible describes Christian foretelling of the good news or foretelling of the good news in terms that would have been very familiar back in the day to Roman ears. Because back in the day, when there was a new Caesar, you would proclaim the good news. That was, that was the phrase. You would proclaim the good news that a new Caesar has ascended to the throne. It was a proclamation that everyone was supposed to get really excited about. And you better look happy, otherwise, you know what, you could be kind of on, on the next cross. You know? So yay, you know, new Caesar kind of idea. But that was the phrase the early church took for this whole idea of proclaiming there's, there's, a, there's a new king. Jesus is Lord. He's been exalted. It was a phrase that to us we doesn't resonate in the same way because we're used to it in a Christian sense. But back in the day, it would have been really clearly understood that you're declaring there's a new king. There's a new Lord. And depending on the nature of that Lord, depends on whether or not this is good news or bad news. So there's one thing to proclaim that there's a new king. But obviously there's a suggestion underneath that that actually people should now bow the knee and express allegiance to this king. Is that what Christians do? Well, yeah, they do. But what's the difference between doing that and what these other empires do? Here's a difference, and it's absolutely vital that you understand it. There are two things that are really important and really key. Number one, this is divine. It's not human. Whenever you declare the good news and call people to come to believe in Jesus, you are looking for the activity of God in the heart of a person to have won them completely to the good news. Amen? You're not looking to lean on people. You're not looking to inappropriately pressure people. You're not looking to manipulate people. In fact, you are completely, if your head is right, you're completely leaving all those things behind because they're part of that statue. But instead, you are... You are confident in the fact that there is a God who is alive who is changing hearts and lives through the power of the gospel and so in that sense you simply proclaim and you declare it and you call people to believe in Jesus but the whole time you are leaning into a confidence that God is at work that is hugely different because when you're confident in that way you're not kind of you're not bringing strings attached you're not treating people you know well or badly, depending on how they, how they respond. You know, nothing, nothing of the sort. What you are doing simply is, is you are letting people know there's a new king in town. Okay? And then saying, you need to do something about that. Now, why do we need to do something about that? Here's why. I need to burst the myth of human autonomy. The Bible says one way or another, all of us are subjects of a kingdom. No one, no one is outside of that. So no, no one is outside of a kingdom, which is why the Bible, when talking to believers, says that God has transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. And whenever someone gets saved, you, you will know it. Those of you that are believers, you will, you will know, do you know what? I realized when I came to know Christ that before I knew him, actually I was in darkness. 
whether or not I was like a practicing Satanist or not, okay, most people aren't. Okay, nevertheless, there is this recognition. I was under the power and influence of other spiritual things, and now I'm enjoying this extraordinary freedom in Christ. Okay, what's happened there is you've been taken out of one kingdom and brought into another. So this is the reality that is put before us. When you begin to realize that, suddenly it then becomes incumbent on believers to share the good news. Why? Well, because the vast majority of people do not make a conscious choice to be part of the kingdom of darkness. It's not that we don't choose to sin. We do. We, make, we choose to do things that are wrong. But the Bible says that we are born in a condition, born separated from God, born in a sense of darkness. Therefore, as a result, actually, it's all we've ever known. There's a yearning in us, a sense of a loss of something, and a sense there must be more meaning built wide into us by the grace of God. But there's, there, with it, there comes this sense of we don't know what that is or how to escape out of where we are. The Bible says that what God chooses to use is the simple proclamation of, one, of believers who have had their life changed by Jesus to declare what he's done, to unlock in the lives of those people new life and new kingdom life in Jesus Christ. Amen. So I want to put it to you that we need to resist this idea from our wider culture that it is wrong or bigoted or out of order to tell people about Jesus and hope that they come to know him it is the kindest and most generous thing you can do. In fact, if you know this Jesus and you don't, it begs the question. It, does, it, does, it begs the question, do you really believe the message? It begs the question, how much do you care about those who don't yet know? It begs the question, do you somehow think that you're responsible for their response? Because you're not. Praise God. Praise God. It's in their hands and it's in his hands. Amen? But this kingdom has been established. And while it's not yet consummated, the Bible's promise is this, that it will become like a mountain that fills the whole earth. That's why we're confident. That's why even when we look back at the last 2,000 years of church history, it's not perfect. But we can see God at work in wonderful ways, changing multitudes of people's lives. And I want to, my prayer for us today is that we leave this service knowing two things. Number one, that God is totally sovereign. And number two, that the kingdom of God has been inaugurated in Jesus Christ and will be consummated in him. And that for us to be able to share the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done is the most wonderful privilege that any any human being can know. Amen? Amen. Amen.